30 seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard Allow me to set the scene. You're walking through a rundown neighborhood in Richmond, Virginia, where what was once a bustling corridor of shops is now abandoned, overgrown, and derelict. As you walk past the empty storefronts, you come to a single store that looks like it could actually still be in business. The sign on the door says, by appointment only. Feeling brave, you poke your head in and find what could be an antique shop. Strange objects are strewn everywhere. Rusty spoons, old photos, small toys, mixed among weirder objects that resemble half-finished art projects and things you just cannot identify. Two guys are sitting towards the back, one with a long beard, and neither interrupts their conversation to welcome you or ask if you need assistance. After a few minutes of browsing, you find what appears to be a long tooth. It strikes something in you that you can't explain. You muster your way up to the two gentlemen and stand there awkwardly until they finally acknowledge your presence. What is this? you ask. What's its number? the bearded one replies. You look at the object and see a small tag with the number 217. You show him, he shuffles to the back and returns with a large book. Flips through until he finds the entry for 217 and says, That, my friend, is the last remaining tooth of the werewolf that bit President Taft. You look at the tooth, skeptical of the story. How much do you want for it? For that, we'll need a small vial at least half full with the tears of a grown man. Wait, a what? You reply, now utterly baffled. A small vial, he repeats, at least half full with the tears of a grown man. We'll also accept a medium vial, A quarter full with the tears of a grown man, adds the second fellow. Can't I just pay you for it? Nope, they say at once. No cash or credit cards accepted. Quests only. What is this place, you ask? Welcome to the wizard shop. Wayne and Mike, welcome to Ritual Space. Thank you. What's our magic word going to be? My favorite magic word is gazpacho. Ooh, that's a good one. All right. One, two, three. Gazpacho. Tell me about the wizard shop and how it how it came to be. Well, um, we'll start with the, the idea that I was homeless at the time. Um, I just sold a sailboat coming back into Richmond, Virginia, and in looking for an apartment... No one would uh, rent anything to me because I didn't have a job. I had sold a sailboat, had cash, but no one would give me a, a space to um, live in. Looking around, I found a uh, an old storefront for rent um, on an abandoned um, city block and contacted the man. 
and he opened the door for me and it was a completely abandoned building, nothing in there, just gutted out. The back door had been kicked in and there had been a small fire. And um, he says, auspicious beginnings. Yes, yeah, yeah. right. He says, hey, Mike, you can have it and do whatever you want with it. I don't really care. And um, so I rented it from him and immediately set a tent up in the middle of the place and um, just went about um, kind of occupying the space, not really sure of why I was there or what was going to happen. But that's where Wayne comes in, where he himself had already been um, pursuing the wizard life and and sitting around in the place and playing around as we do, um, he kind of says, well, why not make it a wizard shop? And my intention was to initially build a, um, a conceptual art retail store, um, you know, selling things that uh, don't really make sense, probably don't um, like inventions without purpose, those kind of things. And in the end, a Spencer's gifts, a Spencer's gifts. Right. <laughs> so, and so it turns out that, um, um, it's not the best marketing to say conceptual art retail store, but if you say wizard shop, people get it. And from there, we just started building like drunk 10 year olds and, you know, got salvaged lumber and just started finding, um, forgotten things on the street is initially what the, the start was forgotten items off of the street. Um, just, um, um, castaways, putting them on shelves and bringing them in. And you start realizing that once you bring anything, it's just like anything that's inside of a church is sanctified because it is inside of a church. Once you bring something into a wizard shop, it immediately becomes the same thing of power and magic just because it's in the wizard shop. Even if it's a three-legged chair, everybody thinks it's the best three-legged chair they ever did see. So then what did the wizard shop do? You started collecting items in ephemera that were not for sale. Yes. It started to grow on its, of its own accord and people started bringing us stuff like looted from art school dumpsters and anything that was weird and esoteric. Mm -hmm. And suddenly we had way more stuff than we needed. Just tons of, of crazy junk and boats and cast off art projects that got repurposed into even weirder things. Um, and the front door says by appointment only because we never knew when we were going to be in there and we didn't want people knocking on the door, but also we wanted people to come in, but we didn't want to tell anybody where it was due to it basically being a squat for Mike. And <laughs> yeah, we just didn't. Oh, that's important. Too. Yeah. <laughs> it's all. Yeah. I guess a lot of it was um, as a guise to hide the fact that I was occupying the rear of the building um, as a house. Um, Cause initially the tent that I was living in, pay no attention to the man living behind the curtain. Pretty, that's the entire thing had that effect. We were trying to build a fake front so that if the city walked in and they're like, "What are you doing here?" and we would say, "Well, we are um, operating a wizard shop," and they would say, "Well, you know, let me see your books." And you're like, "Hey, we're not selling anything," you know. And yeah. you're like, "Where are we in your code books at this point? How can you argue against you know this kind of thing?" In the tent that I was living in. Welcome to our maze of nonsense, which <laughs> will direct you back out the front door and you'll never see the back room. The, whole, the whole point. Yeah. yeah. That was a lot of the plan. The, every, every bit of it along the way. And because um, even the tent, when I first started living in it, I was afraid somebody would walk in and just see the tent. So I started collecting those little colored balls that kids play in, like in the pool balls. Um, I had a whole bag. I had like 200 of those balls that you had the other night that you were juggling. Mm hmm. Because we had him here in the house for Lily, and he kept dumping them out on the floor, and it was agonizing to pick them up every five minutes. So yeah. we, I took him over there and gave him the mic. Right. And he, and then he, I he put him in the tent. I filled the tent up with them, and then I got even more, and then I filled the tent with them. 
Um, so it was about, I don't know, eight inches deep um, worth of colored balls. And I just began to sleep in them every night um, because then like a drunk 10 year old. You know what it is? Because then if somebody walked in and they're like, you can't live in here, I'd be like, this isn't living. This is, you know, an installation piece, it's you know, durational performance. Art. You, can, you can get rid of, you can get away with anything if you call it performance art. Yeah. So as we were starting to learn, you know, and so it was as a as a means to hide everything in the beginning. But then it became, it just grew on a life of itself. And people began to really take it very seriously. And we ourselves sat down and realized that we had an obligation at the point, at that point to um, not let people down. It felt like that you had to be present for them because people believed this and they wanted, they wanted to have the belief. So we started taking it more and more seriously as we went along. I love that that's like, it starts as a joke. Well, it starts, it starts as being homeless, and then it's, it becomes a joke, and then it becomes other people taking it seriously, and then it grows mm-hmm. out of that. I think that's a really beautiful explanation of kind of how often how magic comes into the world. Yeah, of, uh, yeah a, a weird need and, and uh, trying to hide one thing and then growing something else. Yeah, it's like, it's like who would have ever thought like on that abandoned city block that the one thing that would thrive is um, kind of like a tongue-in-cheek magic shop yeah and we weren't magic we were almost like it's, we we both knew it was like kind of undefinable i didn't know anything about it myself i just felt like i was kind of like oh so all of a sudden you're like oh crap we're you know you take hold of a, of a wizard shop yeah. and so i just started reading and researching whatever i could about alchemy um about science in general physics just understandings of the world and um it helped me a lot i know like if anything my own exploration through it helped me grow in that place. Literally, I believe the building saved me. I was a, it was a, a weird time in my life and out of it all, it, it rebirthed like a whole new identity. Um, I think for both of us, we were able to like, just kind of like have this weird um, experiment that just kept rolling. And here it is like, I don't know, five, six years later and it still is what it is. You know I mean? Yeah. I've got um, some, some of the um, most well-to-do people of Richmond. I know um, still, consider me a wizard like like they take it they take it as seriously as well you know what were some favorite items that you had in the shop we the most fun we had was when we started doing pop-ups where we do like little little shops in places like people have their normal craft markets you know where you find your like embroidered stuff you Mm -hmm. know your hand printed t-shirts you know your handmade soaps and all that stuff so we started doing wizard shop pop-ups which meant we started manufacturing items and um, the people at the pop ups didn't like us as much because they were actually trying to make money mm-hmm. and we were kind of making light of the whole situation and being given, you know, giving people stuff in exchange for other crazy things. And the, we 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 found a ceramic mold to make gnomes. Mm. So we started making gnome soap, but it was wizard beard hair soap mm. and it had hair from my beard in it. But we started. Uh, yeah, started hairy soap. Yeah, it was yeah. gross. It was just yeah. disgusting little gnomes with like curly hair sticking out of it. It was terrible, <laughs> and it also like melted, yeah. and and it was made out of cellulose uh-huh. and some other stuff. And we uh we made a ton of them, but then I was running out of beard hair more or less. I'm like, <laughs> man, I don't know if I can keep this up, you know. Yeah. But there was a wizard shop dog. Yeah. His name was Goose, and Goose had a beard. <laughs> it was the bearded lady. Right. And so. Goose was leaving hair around the shop anyhow, so we started putting dog hair into the soap. Right. 
Um, and we had, it was really terrible. We had a whole basket full of these little gross hairball gnomes, um, gross little goblins. Yeah, yeah, that we were we were giving out to people. The, be- um, the best was that we tried to make things really work hard to make things that nobody wanted. Felt like it. Like nobody would take any interest in this stuff because we're like we're not selling it anyway yeah and we just want people to come up and pick it up and be like what is this and then walk away right. but it was amazing how much which is what everyone else there doesn't want they're right. like oh my god you looked at the honey for so long please buy that jar of honey no <laughs> right. you're walking away no no right right and you guys are like ah shit somebody's actually trying to buy one of these right. soaps what's wrong with this person <laughs> we made a giant we had a giant gallagher hammer kind of thing yeah, it was basically yeah. a shovel handle with a, a wooden like a foot long wooden block on the end of it it was just this giant mallet that mike had wood burned into the end of it the icelandic rune stave for opening doors without a, opening locks without a key mm. <laughs> but it was just a giant hammer that you, people could barely lift yeah right. um and that was one of our our best sells as we sold it to this kid at a pop-up and that was the the kid that he had to uh, give us a lock of his hair, and he had to write a letter to himself in the future. And he really slaved over that letter, and we had both of those things in the shop for a long time in one of the cabinets. Um, yeah, he took... I remember, because he, he wrote the letter, and then he comes back, and his father at first had said that his son was really into the Icelandic stabs. Like, he, that's what attracted him to it. And I'm like, this is rad. This kid is like... I don't know what you say, like... 11 years old or something 10 or 11 and he that's what his fascination was and we're like we got to help this guy out man but not make it easy for him so he wrote the letter to himself and he had to invent his own symbol at the end as well and he brings it back to me and i remember being like all right man we got one more thing and we had a friend there who was a witch um who also she gave us a pair of her panties and we made a, a pair of um um what is it um a wizard beard hair merkin um, made, <laughs> made with the underpants of a witch. Yeah. Um, they're really great. Um, nobody wants those either. And, um, and so the, the, the kid comes back and we're telling him like, all right, you got one more thing, man. And um, I told him to, um, oh, what was it? It was like, she, she wrapped um, leather around his hair and I asked him to start thinking about the future. I was like, I want you to think about the future right now. And he like closes his eyes and he all squinches his face. And then we just snipped his hair and took it. <laughs> it was like, there you go, man. I was like, I told him, I was like, go unlock some doors and yeah. gave him the mallet. And he's like dragging it because he can barely lift it. But then a week later, we get an email. Um, I got an email addressed to me because that was the only address that he could um, come across or whatever. But it was it was for both of us. And he said that his son had been having a hard time in school. Um, he was becoming withdrawn and isolated and just going through a tough time in his age. And he said that what what happened with his son that day was really meant something. And he said it really changed his his son. And he's just started like communicating a little bit more and just being different ever since that day. And he just really thanked us. And he said, if there's anything that he could do to help out the cause, then he's in it. He's on board because he's a believer. And we're like, holy crap, we have a cause now. (laughs) Like, wow. Yeah. You go from like trying to make, you know, furry underpants to, um, (laughs) <laughs> having kids like so have to help people out yeah and get get kids on the straight and narrow or yeah. the twisted crooked path of the wizard uh-huh. i just have this image of this kid a few years later as like a teenager just like in the woods with like metal blasting <laughs> and he's just like taking out all of his frustration just swinging this hammer and just like gallagering it up just like you know he's got a bag of fruit and he's just like uh-huh. no it's like we always see like i always heard like growing up 
isn't about getting older. It's about doing all the cool shit you said you'd do when you were a kid. Mm. So it's like nobody wants to grow up and be like talks about being a, an actuary or something, you know, yeah. like you're not sitting around dreaming of that stuff. You're dreaming about um, sheet forts and fucking eating waffles and ice cream for dinner, mm. you know. And so that's where we're kind of like following that kind of trick where I know it, when people walk in the shop, they are surprised at first. But if you maintain a seriousness about it, people realize that they can't take the power away from you yeah. because you're the one delivering the power, you know. Right. And so these individuals like. Especially younger people want to know when they come in the shop, they don't know what to make of it because they can't figure out ages. They have a hard time deciphering who you are anymore. You're not their parent. Yeah. You know, you're about the parent's age or something, or you look like them or a little bit, but you're not them. You live totally different, you yeah. know, like how does this happen? And then they start realizing that there's a whole other possibility in, in, in the world. You're having more fun than they are except you're older and that's very difficult for people to understand. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> How did the quest thing come about? I, I love this idea of that. You, you have to earn the items rather than just uh, pay for them. We just made a, a decision early on that we didn't want to sell things. We didn't want it to be a, ca you know, a capitalist venture, even though it would have made things a whole lot easier had we been making money and people probably would have paid us for some of the stuff. Um, we donated some of the soap to an auction, an art auction once, and somebody paid like $60 wow. for this little gross hairy gnome soap yeah. and took it home. And I think it melted in their freezer and it was <laughs> yeah. disgusting and terrible. But yeah. um, we just didn't want to have to deal with money. And we also didn't want to have to file for business permits and all that stuff. And I mean, it's a wizard shop. Like money shouldn't even come into it. Like wizards don't care about money. Yeah. And so yeah the idea of the quest was basically for us to get some things that we needed like pizza and beer <laughs> in exchange for these items that were things that we drug out of the alley yeah but now had like given a new lease on life as as magical artifacts and we never really did we, i don't think we ever did send somebody on a quest for pizza no but we got a lot of free beer out of the it the whole joke was that we were gonna the first quest was like the first quest was like um a six pack of tube socks in a meatball sub. It's like anytime any, <laughs> we were like, anytime somebody wants something, that's going to be the thing. You just tell them we need a six pack of like black tube socks and yeah. a meatball sub. But you realize when people were asking for things, which I started seeing myself was like the need for things where people just want in general. If you make the price high enough, do they still want it? Or does it, does it go out of their hands? When the price is no longer um, of a monetary value and it becomes a challenge that they themselves have to overcome, the whole deal is that what they learn from the challenge is greater than the object that they receive. Yeah. So going on the quest itself is the the result. Um, we'd had like a this broken mirror with this picture behind it kind of thing that a woman wanted, and we're like, all right, you know, you got to. It was something like you have to do a draw us a self portrait. Then you have to do a blind contoured self-portrait to make, you know, like um, um, a two-piece artwork. But we wanted to make it a triptych, and they were like, all right. And then you have to go and find your doppelganger in the world and do the mirror game with them and have a photograph of that taken. So then it's a picture of you with your doppelganger, your, and then your two self-portraits all combined in the thing. Oh, that's awesome. And she's like, oh, yeah, my my doppelganger is Juliette Lewis. And I'm like, okay. You know, <laughs> I was like, that that'd be make it really difficult. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's that's rad you know get get going you know i had people like 
they had to collect um, five different species of spiders, um, keep them alive and deliver them to us. Um, the one gentleman had to get the two handfuls of um, mistletoe and deliver it in a wooden box that couldn't be opened. Um, this couple wanted a, a Mexican baseball bat that I had and um, asked them that they had to grow an orchid from seed, which generally takes, I think, about two years yeah. to get it start sprouting and growing or whatever. Um, but I didn't want the orchid. I was like, I want it to be at least three to four inches tall. And when it gets to that height, I want them to be able to go into a hospital and have a photograph taken in an actual hospital bed where it's like the birthing photo where like the mom just gave birth and she's like holding the baby and all sweaty and stuff. And the father's leaning in. Um, but I just want them doing that with this, um, new seedling orchid. I was like, you can keep the orchid. Yeah. I was like, I just want the picture, you know? Did they do it? No, that's no. where there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people that didn't complete their quest. Of and course, it's, some of them were easy. Some of them were really difficult. Um, but the whole point of the quest was to like include everybody in our game. Yeah, and to make people be creative and to get out of their normal, you know, walk a day life and do right. something that they wouldn't normally do. Yeah, I think that's very important to like leave that door open so it's invitational. So people will want to be like no 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 but like but what's the real explanation like i want i want you to like i want you to break character and give me the real thing and then when you're like here's the path you want right. to play the game this is the only door that's open this door is closed right. yeah and we just really wanted to like i just wanted to devalue money yeah. because people who have money have a certain power and they can just walk in and buy anything yep. and so they have a there's this kind of you know elitist situation that we just wanted to erase entirely so that people with lots of money could come in and couldn't buy anything mm -hmm. and they were all automatically on the same level with everybody else that came in the store yeah right and we it started changing though too once it's kind of like it takes a while to train your audience. And so those people started understanding better of what it is, this idea of quests and everything in general. And then I started watching people come in and they'd just be like, I want to go on a quest here. Um, I want this. Give me a quest. And they would just grab something randomly off the shelf and say, you know, put me on a quest. And it's like, I'm like, that's not how it works. So I was like, the quest isn't going to work because you don't really want said object. Yeah. Without the need for having that, you're not going to fight hard enough or go through the task that it's going to take you to be able to get there. Desire is the first thing. Desire is it. And it has to be a true desire. It can't be this like, oh, I just want to go on a funny little um, journey and stuff. Because they, they don't have the commitment. My friend got to do a fun thing. I want that too. Give me the same thing that my friend did. Exactly. And the guy, the one person who delivered those, um, the two handfuls of mistletoe in a wooden box that couldn't be opened, it took him three months. Yeah. And it was a picture that he wanted because he wanted to give it to his girlfriend. And it took him forever. And eventually he wound up in South Carolina and he was on his aunt's property. And he looked up in the top of a tree and he was like, oh my God, there's some mistletoe. And it took him, you know, it took yeah. him a while to get it down and all this stuff. But... He finally, all of a sudden, just three months later, there's a knock at the door and I open it and there's this guy standing there with a wooden box. And I was like, ah, yeah. it's yeah. Like, you've come for your picture. You know? <laughs> we just called everything open accounts. Yeah. There's just an open account on so many objects and you never know if these people are ever coming back. You know, Magical layaway. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> well, I like what you were saying, Wayne, about not wanting to sell things because what you're doing is you're asking people to create their own value. Like money is a way to keep track of another system's value and you went to some dumb job and worked a bunch and now you have these tokens that represent the value that you perceived your work to be worth and then you can trade them. But if you go and you spend two months of your own life experience looking out for mistletoe and then putting it in a box that can't be opened, you now have a 
picture that when someone's like, oh, this is a cool picture. Can I have it? You're like, no, I worked my butt off yeah, for that. I've got a great story behind this. I mean, a lot, a lot of the items that came in as quest items went back out as magical artifacts. Mm. And that was the way, part of that was we started doing that pretty early on because right. we realized that we weren't going to be able to like make enough things. Yeah. Um, so we wanted people to be bringing us new things consistently. So a lot, that's when the, it went from tube socks and, and pizza to right. like, you've got to bring us this item you've crafted and then we can put it in the shop and then someone else will come in and want that and we can send that back out and they'll bring us something else. Uh-huh. And so it, it, it was just a tool to like foster other people's creativity and get them to help us, you know? And so we've, we've built this, this creative shop and then we invited everybody else to play along and that's what we were trying to do. And so when people are bringing us, you know, we're in there making magic items, but now everybody's bringing us new magic items. So they're totally in on it. The game is spreading. Right. Yeah. It's like, Oh, I remember um, in the, when people started understanding better about the shop itself, because a lot of it, it's the found objects that we had had. We were just like silly storytellers. So most of what we're doing is just taking the objects that are just common day stuff. And we're inventing backstories for them that aren't real. That's all it is. You just give it, give it some flair. You know, I used to work as a copywriter and stuff. I was like, that's all it is. You're just remarketing it and putting it back out there in the world, trying to give it in a second life. Can you give me an example of one that of, you remember? Of some rebranding of stuff. Um, I remember it's like, I remember having a sword, like somebody giving me a sword. Um, It was just a sword blade and we stick it, stuck it into a stick as like a handle. Um, But it just becomes the idea of like, it's not just a sword. It's a, it was a sword that had, it was something like a sword that had killed a vampire or possibly cut the head off a unicorn. Mm. We're not really sure, you know, but it's like somewhere in there, you know, (laughs) you get some variations on it. Um, But yeah, so the, then the, um, it started becoming also where people had objects that they themselves didn't want anymore. They wanted to discard of them out of their own life, but they felt like they were too rare just to be thrown away. Mm. There's no other place. They didn't understand where else to do it, to deal with them. You don't just take it to a thrift store. There was something different about it. They still had a sentiment towards the object or something. It's like batteries. You can't just throw batteries. You have to go (laughs) drop them in the proper thing. Right. A magical artifact that is in your life, you can't just toss that out. You've exactly. You've got to go bring it to the wizards for proper disposal right. and re- recycling. If it's like some um, weird, um, crusty, um, stuffed animal that you've had since you were, you know, eight years old, but you are you just don't, you don't really care about it anymore, but you don't want to just throw it away. It's uh, The place became like a depository of um, these objects. We became like caretakers of other people's special things, you know, so they just started coming into the shop in that manner as well. That's so cool. How did the word spread throughout the community? Was it like it, like people started to get in on the idea and understand and seek out the shop, which is open by appointment only? Mm-hmm. How did that grow over time? Kind of like wildfire. It was surprising to both of us how fast that word got around and people, you know, you just, you know, hello, I'm, my name's Wayne. And like, oh, you're the wizard. You're Wayne the wizard. Like, uh, yeah. Oh, can we come to your wizard shop sometime? Right. Like, sure. Um, people just passed it around. I mean, you know, Richmond's kind of a a small town in a big town, I guess, but it got around really quick. I felt like too. I felt like too around that time. It was like people had already gone through the phase of 
rediscovering like Wiccan mm-hmm. styles and things or just, you know, practices and stuff. And then wizard, the just the word wizard, I just started hearing it a little bit more. Yeah. Wizard, this is the word, you know, just started coming up again. It was like people were getting more into this esoteric kind of things. I was more into alchemy myself. Mm-hmm. I'd always considered myself a redneck surrealist is what yeah. I was. And um, and surrealism is like more my shtick. Um, but it just played well with this idea of wizard in general. Um, I think just having the old building became just a fun place. You know, people just looking for something different. I mean, it's an art town. People just want something that um, kind of pushes their creative boundaries and being able to come and play in a shop like that, I think became, um, it became its own destination of sort, you know, even though for the most part, we never had anybody over. That was like the best thing. We don't want people (laughs) like (laughs) what's this concept of manufactured scarcity, which I'm. I really enjoy like in this digital age of you can have a thousand copies of anything and you know, nothing's lost and just social media where like we never told anybody where the shop was yet. People ended up finding it Mm -hmm. at some point because somebody had been there. They knew where it was, but we never published the address. We never told anybody. We just, you know, when people said, can we come to wizard shop? We say yes. Yeah. But we never told them where it was. Um, We had events, but we never, told anybody you know where the shop was or how to get to it and we tell them when the event was but usually um, usually just say like we usually just say like good luck finding us you know it's like something's going on if you can find it you know we're out here we're out here and so it makes it's the same thing of like everything has to be like initially in building the in the getting the shop i remember we had we joked around where when we walk in the front door we wanted to build a little like alcove that you walk into but it was going to be built out of doors so there'd be a door on top, you know, it's kind of like a, a, a little breezeway, mm-hmm. but it would just all be made out of doors. And like only one of them would be unlocked um, when you walk in, but it'll, it would change all the time. So yeah. you walk in and then you like try a bunch of handles and it's like how many, how much further would somebody go to keep trying to get access, you know, to find this kind of place? Or are they just going to give up and never come out and find this kind of deal? It's like intentionally complicating things to make them more yes. fun. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, it's you know, it's easy to walk across a playground, right. but it's a lot harder if the if the ground is lava, and then you have to figure out a different yes. way to do it. And that's where the, the the enjoyment comes from. It absolutely, which is what people. It's so funny. There's so many things that like I think you know modern adults do where it's like, ah, oh, how do I make I could sleep in my bed, right? But it will be more challenging if I go take my RV someplace, and it's even more challenging if I take my tent someplace and it's even more challenging if i like sleep under a hollowed out log in the woods and right. i'm like the most extreme right. you know naturalist survivor it is, guy. it is that idea of the journey is the destination too mm-hmm. with this shop where you can find out about a cool place you can google it you can have your phone tell you how to get there you can drive over there and then be all disappointed about it you know yeah. well, that's not as cool as i thought it was going to be but if you have to put effort into it a little bit of yourself yeah and make an effort and it is a quest or a treasure hunt. Um, and that's the fun of it is finding this place and then seeing what's at the end of the, you know, at the end of your journey Yeah, more so than just instant gratification, mm-hmm. like treasure hunt, working for stuff. How is the wizard shop evolving currently? What is the, the at, general loose direction that it, it appears to be going in at this point? I mean, myself being in the building, most of the time I'd been gone for two years on a, living on a sailboat and I just come back um, through Richmond and the shop was still what, what it was, but everything just feels like it's, it's 
there needs to be a new energy. There needs to be something that changes over, um, a new growth period. And a lot of what I personally have been focusing on is that the artifacts themselves, although they were a good entryway for people to come in, um, it was something tangible that people could look at and experience this idea of maybe something is magical and that magic is outside of them. Um, I'm believing now more so that the shop needs to be an empty space that can be um, molded into anything that it needs to be at that point. So everything is kind of on the, on its way out, just clearing out the building, um, taking it down to the most minimalist um, form of itself. I believe it's more like, I feel like I'm building a church, like everything that we're working on now, it's like the building itself. It had been a church two times before, mm. um, storefront church. It used to be called um, the Deliverance Center. And then before that, it was called the, um, the House of God with um, Pastor Jeremiah Thurgood. I keep getting mail for these people. The Deliverance Center sounds like where you'd go to pick up a package. I know, right? right. But it's like, it's the building's already been sanctified as a church twice over. Um, and I was like, well, we'll just kind of keep it in this like kind of um, sanctuary kind of feeling, a place. So, um, it's still going to have the ability. It's like more about the mind now. Um, this idea of like, like I, I keep joking saying that I just want to deal in time and space. Mm. That's what I mean. That's what I work in. I work in time and space. And that's what I, I just kind of keep focus on that. And it's a, it's feeling better already. I like, I like the, um, the emptiness that's starting to get created in there. Um, it's, a, it's almost like another ridiculous thing where it's like you have this building and when people have buildings, they fill them with stuff and they usually fill them with stuff until they fill it with too much stuff. And then they got to get a bigger building. Yeah. You got to go rent somebody else's building. Get, or you and, get storage or whatever yeah. kind of stuff. And I'm like, if you just keep a place and then people walk in and it's just empty. I was like, I like that. I was like, it's almost like the anti-building. It's like, well, what do you have the space for then? I'm like, because you're here, you yeah. know? It's like a place for you to come to, man, you know? Yeah. And it's not a congregation. We're not going to have 16 chairs set out in a potluck every Friday. It's just going to be an empty building, probably with one chair sitting yeah. in the inside of it. You know, we'll see how, see how that goes. <laughs> it sounds like an open space of possibility. Uh-huh. Because you never know. Then it gives you the... Instead of people coming in and relying upon us to deliver the magic, now there's an empty canvas for them to be able to do their own creation. They can come in and see this empty space and be like, oh man, I envisioned something going on here. Maybe yeah. it's a performance, uh, maybe it's an art show, you know, maybe it's some type of recital or something going on, but it'll it'll have the the needed effect at that point to be able to get something done. Let's talk about our spell that we can give to the listeners to help them take the magic of the wizard shop into their own lives in some way. The underlying idea of the the quests for the wizard shop. If you can have a quest spell for people to put themselves on to seek out mystical paraphernalia, maybe items. It doesn't have to be items, and that's the idea where Mike's uh -huh. moving with the shop. Is it's a far more spiritual situation now and less prop based or uh, tactile. Mm. Um, it's moving away from the kind of the, the gimmicks of yeah. it, uh, the tree fort haunted house kind of gimmicks <laughs> and, and becoming much more of a spiritual path mm. for people. Um, but you're going from a Spencer's gifts to an Apple store. Yeah. That seems to be the, the way it's headed. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm wondering what we could ask people to do if, if it's, if it's, you know, bartering with something that is a, an unimportant, but potentially magical artifact in their own life or assigning a quest to their friends or something along those lines. It could be finding a mundane item and then asking it 
what makes it special, what makes it not mundane, mm-hmm. what makes it a magical artifact. Yeah. Yeah. It's you can it. find anything in your house, just like we found all kinds of stuff in the alleys and the dumpsters. And It's the idea of acquiring something without monetary means. So an individual would have to go about something in that way. Yeah. The idea of dealing with a friend is probably the easiest to get that started. Um, but it would be. It's like when you think about a quest, because usually when it, we're setting up quests, it, people just ask for a quest, like, just give me one. I'm like, it takes time for us to think about them because you consider the person's personality. Mm-hmm. You consider the object itself and kind of the quest itself should reflect what the object is in some way. You know, it, they, they kind of go hand in hand. Um, yeah, it's like, like Wayne's saying though about I believe like taking something that you finding something that others deem purposeless and giving it a purpose. It's like rebrand it, mm-hmm. give it a new name, label the world differently. Like that's how the, that's what the surrealists did where they broke apart the world and decided that they were going to not play the original games before and start new. And so a lot of that comes in labeling, you know, it's like you don't just call it what it is, invent a whole backstory for it. Yeah. Totally make it to be something that you envision and not exactly the simple simplicity of what it is sitting in front of you. And with that kind of thing, then give it to a friend. And the friend yeah. is like, what is this? And you're like, well, you know what this is. It's, you know, it's like I was trying to think of like how we used to play this because we, we were going to have a, a giant book. Remember, um, everything was going to be codex. The small we book. Had all, we had a bunch of toe tags that were numbered and we'd put them all on the on the items so when someone would pick up a rusty spoon and say what is this and we're like well what number is that well it's 875 and then we would flip through this tome but we only had a small sketchbook but yeah we'd flip through it and then you know oh well you know that's the ladle of argamoth that uh was used to serve punch at the inauguration of god yeah right. yeah right <laughs> do you want it of course you want it the right. second best well-attended inauguration of all time right <laughs> right 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 yeah uh yeah, a lot of a lot of the that that was a, the best game for us was just inventing the stories of the objects themselves, <laughs> and to watch people just really say yes to them. Yeah, they know what, what I'm giving them. I mean, we would used to do these things called auction of the absurds, where we just take the same thing, just like junk items, and um, put them up for auction, and people would bid on them like crazy because they really are like. Like I found an old key. I didn't know what the key was, and I put it on a keychain um, from a Fier- it was a Fiero keychain, and then I printed up a picture of a guy leaning next to a Fiero, and we auctioned it off as like the key to a Fiero, but it was you know it was stolen back in like nineteen um, eighty six behind um, the Piggly Wiggly, yeah. and um, uh, since then it hasn't been seen. But this is the key to it. So if you ever find a Fiero, try it out because it might be yours. You know. <laughs> and, you know, you don't get the car actually. Yeah. You just get, you know, everything but the car <laughs> and the potential to find. Yeah, the mythology. The yes. Well, that's that's something that I've noticed for a while is that I think there's a sort of finite cap on how much an object can truly be worth. Like you can have a chair that sucks and is broken and it does it's uncomfortable. You can't sit in it, and then you can have a nicer chair and you can have a nicer chair and you can have like a you know thousand dollar chair. You're like that is a really good chair. It's very comfortable. It's very good. When you go beyond that, though, what you're paying for is the story. Yes. You're paying for, ah, this is an Italian oak chair from this century, from this designer. Right. Same thing when you go to a fancy restaurant. They don't just say, here's your food. They're like, let me tell you 
the story of your food and how you're going to enjoy it when right. you put it in your mouth. And it's that story that you're paying for. That's why that crab cake costs $120. Right. It's because of the story. Right. You know, I think most people aren't actually, you know, they're not sensitive enough to really tell the difference between a $10,000 couch and a $100,000 couch. Exactly. Unless somebody explains why. Right. When all of a sudden you realize that the, the wood planks of your bed were uh, made from the the hull of a Viking ship, you know, you're like, wow, that's a good bed, man. You yeah. know, <laughs> you're still going to sleep on it the same as any other, but it's like, the I, I love it. I love the ridiculousness of a story, you know, and at a certain time, half of what we do is like, just like the wizard shop. It's just like a tall tale. Yeah. It doesn't have to be real. It's like what it invokes in the world and what it inspires and stuff. And that's what we just play with. Awesome. Thank you, gentlemen. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. For more of the wizard shop, visit their location in Richmond, Virginia, where they're currently having a sale 50% off time and space. And for more of this podcast as a ritual, you can visit patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual, where a donation of $4.20 will get you access to the bonus content, including the recently released highlight reel of Wizard Quest 2019, my journey down the Eastern Seaboard, that includes extended interviews with Wayne and Mike and other folks that I happen to chat with along the way. Check that out at patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual. Until next time, may your quests be fruitful and your artifacts excellent. <laughs>